glorious, glorious things we sing about, are they not? Our great God, uh, before I start, uh, I just want to uh, express a great many thanks for everybody uh, for praying for us and for supporting us. Uh, thank you so much for uh, supporting us on this trip. It was such a tremendous blessing. I almost feel bad that you did not go with us. I do feel bad that you did not go with us and that we hoarded all of these blessings to ourselves. But let me tell you just a few things about Mexico before we get started. Uh, next week, Lord willing, uh, we're going to have a PowerPoint presentation. We want to show you some of the things that we did, some of the things that transpired down there. Uh, but just uh, for us to continue to pray for Pastor Joseph, uh, because of the things that are going on in Mexico, they are truly tremendous things. Let me tell you something about what's going on in Mexico. God is doing revival through uh, Joseph Urban. I mean, that's just the simplest way I could put it. Um, right now, there are two churches in existence. There's one in Mexico City, and there's another one in Guadalajara. That's where Joseph lives. There's another city kind of strategically in between those two uh, cities called uh, Querétaro, and um, Joseph was constantly correcting my Spanish while I was down there. But uh, Querétaro is another place that's already got a congregation, if you would. It's a Bible study at this moment, but already about 60 to 80 people are gathering in Querétaro. Uh, in Mexico City, uh, that church there, there was easily over 200 people in attendance for the conference, and there was in the room where we were at, I mean, there was standing room only. It was glorious. And then in, uh, in Guadalajara, you have uh, oh, roughly 250 to 300 people congregating there. And uh, already in two other cities, they're calling for churches. They're calling for pastors, one in Monterrey and another one in Puebla. So right there, you have five churches that are springing up all through the efforts of this one small family, uh, Joseph and Lena, and now with their baby Josiah and their four boys, their orphans, um, and just wondrous things that God is doing down there. The men and women down there, the brethren, are hungry for the Word of God. And I mean, hung when I say hungry, they are hungry for the Word of God. I preached for five hours. I did two other hours of Q&A sessions, and the men kept me up every night, it seemed, for hours of Q&A. So they just could not get enough Bible. Uh, that's really what it boils down to. And these men and women are zealous for the Lord. They have truly, truly surrendered their lives to Christ. And many of these men are are, are uh, striving very zealously for the things of God, seeking to get their lives in order, their doctrine in order, their families in order, because these men down there want to be used by God. They literally want nothing else in this life but to serve Christ and to be a complete offering for Him. And uh, they want to go to Monterey. They want to go to Querétaro. They want to go to Puebla. They want to go and reach all of Mexico for the glory of God. And uh, it's just, it, there's something so beautiful about what we saw down there. So many young men in particular that feel a calling to the, to the ministry and that are just uh, uh, so zealous. There was one young man that we spent a lot of time with. His name was Alex. He's from Monterrey. He's one of the, one of the folks up there that are, are, are looking for, for Joseph to send a pastor they're, they're saying, send anybody, send us a pastor, send us a brother that can come and teach us the word. What do we got to do to get a pastor up here to preach to us the word of God like you guys are getting down there? And uh, this young man, recently saved, radically converted, uh, was reading the Bible because Joseph had instructed him that before he got into systematic theology and Wayne Grudem, they have a few resources down there. He was getting confused. What should I read? What should I read? And Joseph tells him, read the Bible, uh, you know, and he, matter of fact, as, a, as his young disciple, he told him, I don't want you reading anything else until you finish your Bible. So the few days we were spending with him, night and day, he was like this. <laughs> Literally, everywhere I looked, there was Alex like this. I turn at dinner time, he's like this. You know, in the morning, he's like this. He wanted so bad to finish the Bible so he can get into the things that the older men of God are studying uh, just a real disciple, a tremendous hunger for Christ, 
Christ is being exalted in Mexico. Your money did not go to waste on this trip. Uh, and, 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 and the money that we, uh, uh, that we raised in order to support Joseph with books and materials, they're not just for him. Uh, the, the, the brothers down there with a little, a little bit of English that some of them know, they're trying to work their way through, through those English textbooks. They're trying to receive any. If they can just get a little shrivel of truth, they will be so content and glad with it. Um, and obviously... The time was also extremely convicting just to see the passion and the hunger and the prayer meetings and, and these folks just crying out to God for revival. They're in the midst of a great darkness in Mexico and uh, a darkness that I suspect will only increase by the providence of God. When we got back from Mexico, we had another missionary brother staying with us, uh, Josh Lingle. I mean, some of you know him already. Joshua Lingle is uh, the president of I-Square Ministries. I call him a missionary because he spends half of his life in the third world. Uh, he's hardly ever you know, here for any length of time before he shoots off to Uganda or Sudan or the Congo or goes down to Brazil or goes down to Malta. Last time he visited us here, the day he left my house, he was, he was headed to Malta to meet with all of the churches of, of the Middle East, leaders of Middle, Middle East churches all around the world. And uh, so when I got back, I said, you know, I didn't see a lot of Islamic presence in Mexico. Do you know anything about Islam in Mexico? And he said, well, yeah, of course I do. Mexico, all of Latin America is, has been handed over to Islam. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, all of the leaders of the Muslim world, the Middle Eastern world, that is, met with the leaders of the Latin world. So all the political leaders of Latin America including uh, Mexico, Brazil, all of Latin America, got together with all these political leaders and all of these business leaders of the Muslim world, very wealthy millionaire, billionaire type uh, 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 oil tycoons and sheikhs and all of these types of folks, and they, they signed a contract, a covenant, they call it the Luna Covenant, with Latin America that, that uh, uh, the Muslim world is getting ready to, 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 to send billions and billions of dollars funneling billions of dollars into Latin America through business if the Latin American politicians would sign the Luna Covenant, which uh, I read some of it, Josh had it, and I was reading through it, and some of it was stipulating that uh, in their, uh, in their uh, uh, power at the UN and in any other international stage, they were to always vote strategically against America, against the U.S., against Israel, that they were to push for the 1967 lines that Israel would have to return to in Palestine. And all these, all these stipulations had to do with that topic. Uh, any, anything that pushed towards an arms proliferation in America and anything that would weaken the state of Israel. Uh, and, uh, and Latin American leaders signed it. And they've agreed to vote in that direction. So we may not see mosques everywhere all over Mexico, Something much more sinister is at work in Latin America. And so there's a lot to do on many different fronts. And uh, I tell you, if we go back to Mexico, please pray to come with us next time, okay? And to keep Joseph in prayer, he needs a lot of prayer, a lot of prayer. And I'll talk a lot more about it, Lord willing, next week. This week, what I've planned to do, because between getting home uh, Thursday afternoon, getting home Thursday afternoon, and being as sick as we all were, we got really bad food poisoning. Um, uh, just between there and then having Josh at my house, uh, there was no way that I was going to be able to crank out a, a sermon. <laughs> so what I want to do is I, I went back and I adapted some of my material from the conference, and I want to kind of give you uh, um, uh, sort of a sneak peek into what I taught down there in Mexico, okay? I've never taught this to anybody. I told them, you guys are my guinea pigs. When I was teaching them, you know, they all laughed and chuckled. But uh, it, it has to do with the supremacy of Christ in all of Scripture. So if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, and stand with me. And for the reading of our text, I thought that we would read Luke 24, beginning in verse 44, beginning in verse 44. This is what the Word of God says. Now he said to them, 
These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Let's pray together and we'll begin. Father, Lord, I know of no greater theme than Christ in all of Scripture because there we get a glimpse of Christ and all of His glory and all of His redemptive glory and all of His biblical and theological glory. And so, Lord, I pray that You would just show us Jesus. We echo the words of the Gentiles that came seeking to see Jesus, and we echo the words of the disciples when they said, we have found him, we have found him, the one of whom all of the prophets spoke. And so, Lord, we want to look afresh at your word, and we want to consider carefully that what we hold in our Bible, in, our, in this book, of Old and New Testaments is a Christian book from beginning to end. And so, Father, exalt your Son. Make Him known. Reveal to us Jesus in all of Scripture. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This was uh, the sermon or the really the lecture by the time the translation got to it. It was so hard to preach with a translator. You know, you get started, and I thought, you know, this is simple. I just get up there like I do at Heritage Grace, and, and I'll just start preaching, except that every five seconds I have to stop, <laughs> and I have to let the translator help me out. And, and then by the time I go back to what I was saying, uh, it's quite something to keep the same train of thought. But the Lord, I think, helped me and was gracious. But I really want to look at uh, this aspect of what Luke is talking about. And then earlier on, he, he told his disciples much the same thing. He said, beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the Scriptures. I mean, you want to talk about Christ-centeredness. You want to talk about a hermeneutic that is Christ-centered. Here is Christ Himself talking about the center of Scripture, the point of Scripture, the sum of Scripture, and it said, and it was things concerning Himself. Here is Christ speaking about things concerning Himself in all of the Scripture. So that means that you and I should be able to go to all of the Scripture. Any part of the Bible when you wake up in the morning to do devotion. Any part of Scripture that you can put your hand on, your finger, and point to is Christian Scripture. That is to say, you will find your Christ right there in the text. You just got to know how to do it. And that's what I spent five hours trying to unpack and to unfold a Christ-centered hermeneutic of all of Scripture. Um, many have said that you have certain new births in the Christian faith. You are born again into Christ. You are made alive through regeneration. And for some of us, by the grace of God, we come into the truths of the doctrines of grace. And when we come into those precious, marvelous, worship-inducing truths, and if they're not that for you, then you have not come into them rightly. Those marvelous truths, you feel as if you have been born again, again. Because suddenly you see God is sovereign. God is sovereign in ways that you never saw. As Spurgeon said, you find yourself going from a boy to a man in your understanding of God. 
And I have to be honest with you, as I've been studying uh, Christ and all of Scripture through the ministry of and the books of various men like Edmund Clowney, this is no secret, go out and get the book yourself. Read Edmund Clowney's The Unfolding Mystery and just marvel at Christ whose, whose footprints are all over the pages of Scripture. The Unfolding Mystery by Edmund Clowney, Preaching Christ in the Old Testament by Edmund Clowney, A Christ-Centered Hermeneutic by Graham's Goldsworthy, and many, many other men like Sidney Gradanus and his hermeneutical manual of how to find Christ in the Old Testament. I can honestly say that I'm coming into one of those rebirths again that says it's not just this part of your Bible that's about Jesus. And this big old side over here, you could just ignore it because that was for the Jews and that was for Israel and really has no relevant application for the Christian today. It's kind of neat to do your devotions out of the Psalms. That's about it. Maybe some apologetics out of Genesis 1. I have found that that is a great myth that much of the evangelical church has swallowed hook, line, and sinker. We are studying, the men are studying, we're studying the book by David Murray, Jesus on every page. And the more and more you come to that truth, you say, well, is that a bit overstatement? But the more you study and the more you dig and the more you pry into the Old Testament with a Christ-centered lens, the more you start realizing, I think that statement is true. Jesus on every page of the Old Testament or as the author of Hebrews says, quoting David in Psalm 40, the volume of the book is of him. God designed the Bible around Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, because what I'm talking about is a biblical theology of Christ. What is biblical theology? Well, it's kind of like systematic theology or historical theology or dogmatic theology. It is a theology system. It is a theological discipline. It is a school of theology. Just like you have all, you go to the store, or you go online, you have all these systematic theologies. These are systematic theologians that are teaching systematic theologies. There are some good, some bad. You look at historical theology in the same way. Maybe like um, Allison's book, New Companion to Grudem. Excellent book on historical theology. Well, biblical theology doesn't mean your theology is biblical. I had to explain that during the conference. I'm not saying your theology is sound. Your theology should be sound, but biblical theology is a technical term for a particular discipline of how to interpret the Bible. It differs from systematic theology in this. And when you're looking at systematic theology, you are looking to answer the question, what does the whole Bible have to say on this one doctrine or this one topic? Let's say justification. So you study justification and you bring in every area of Scripture to talk and to bear and to inform and to enlighten you on the doctrine of justification. That's systematic theology. Biblical theology, on the other hand, is quite different. Biblical theology assumes that there is a unity of Scripture. It assumes that there is one ultimate author of Scripture. It assumes that there is one a sort of redemptive plan in Scripture. One story, if you could put it simply enough. There is a storyline in Scripture. And all of the different books and all of the different events and all of the different People in the Bible serve to contribute to the overarching plan that is being unfolded in the Bible. So you're following, I believe, the mind of God throughout redemptive history. So that what does Genesis have to do with Leviticus? And what does Leviticus have to do with 2 Kings? And what does 2 Kings have to do with Isaiah? And what is the thread that is woven into every aspect of the fabric of Scripture, I suggest to you that that thread is Christ. That it's God working out His purposes, His plans in and through Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. This is our gospel. 
He says, for to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration or the outworking of the mystery, which is We need to stop there because the mystery, musterion there, is almost synonymous, I believe, with what Paul means by the riches of Christ. So the riches of Christ and the mystery is synonymous, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. When he says who created all things, he means to take you beyond creation and into the realm of eternity. And this he makes plain, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to us, through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. You see, the existence of the local church is the climax of Christ's work. Christ did his work. All of the Old Testament was prefiguring, indicating, anticipating, and pointing to the work of Christ. He accomplishes the work. The result of his work is this thing called the ecclesia, the new covenant church. And when the new covenant church is assembled, it is the crescendo that shouts back into the heavenly realms. And it is a final demonstration to every demonic and devilish and and, and wicked, evil, dark power that God's plan has been accomplished. We are a testimony. We are a picture of Christ and His bride. And when it says it's manifested through the, the rule, to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly places, we are proclaiming His praises. We are proclaiming His redemptive work. We are preaching to the demonic realm what the blood of Christ accomplished. The blood that was depicted there in Leviticus. The atoning blood. The expiating, propitiating blood. And what it accomplished. But this is, for, this is the clincher. Verse 11. This was in accordance. Now it takes us backwards again. With the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. A great plan. A mysterious. Have you ever had a plan? A scheme? Not a bad one. Don't think evil. Maybe you had a good scheme, like right now when we were in Mexico, my, my family, some of my cousins and stuff, were, we, stayed, we, had to, we, we got to stay with one of my aunts, and I couldn't say, hey, I hope you're able to come back because we're planning to throw my parents a 50th anniversary party, and nobody knows about it, and they laughed and giggled. I don't know if we'll be able to go back to that party, but, but it just shows they had a secret plan that it was going to be great when it comes to fruition. And that is exactly the same thing. What we're looking at here in Ephesians chapter 3 is God has a great plan. He's had it from eternity. It's the plan of redemption. And he has been unfolding and unpacking and has been unraveling. As he says here, it has been being administrated in certain ways. And now it has reached a great and glorious climax in Christ. So just like my aunts, after this party, let's say it's over. They can look back now and look at my cousin and say, ah, oh, that's why you made that phone call the other day. That's why you slipped that note over to your sister or whatever. That's why you guys were acting so weird. You see, they had lived the reality, but now with this newfound information, the party has arrived. Now they can go back into the plot and the plan and the development, and they can see and they can detect all along the way what was going on. Jesus expects us to read that way into the Bible. He expects us to pick up our Bible from Genesis, or as he says here in Luke, beginning with Moses, and start reading the plan back into the, New Te- in the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You could go back now. Don't 
Don't try to pretend like Jesus hasn't come and you're looking at the Old Testament. Oh, no, we don't want to spoil it. No, 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 no. It's the, the gig is up. The cat is out of the bag. We know the truth. We know what Leviticus is about, and it's not boring. If you love the doctrine of the atonement and the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and you love the doctrine of the resurrection, you can go back to Leviticus and say, that's why they were waving the branches. They were waving the branches to tell us a resurrection is coming. Glorious! Glorious! It makes me want to pull out some branches and wave them. But we're not going to go back to that. This is all about progressive revelation. <laughs> we are not back in that dispensation. We're out of there. No more waving branches. If we don't have branches to wave, then what do we have? We have Christ. We don't have shadows anymore, brethren. We have the substance. And so what I thought I would do is slowly work us through Jesus and the law. And at the end, we'll focus on one particular section out of Genesis. But first, Genesis, and then we'll develop each book slowly. But let's look back now and contemplate these books. Genesis takes us from a primeval history. You're going to have to really tune in here. It takes us from primeval history to the history of the patriarchs and the development of what happened leading into Egypt. Genesis is written to explain to the Israelites who their God is. And it reveals that God is creator, that God is revealer, and that God is redeemer. And so right there, that summary, and I looked at all sorts of different commentaries and all kinds of different uh, 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 Old Testament introduction manuals like uh, Tremper Longman's and, and they, this consensus is in. Genesis is, and the law is about that. It's about God being creator, God is revealer, and God is redeemer. Well, guess what? We know the New Testament now, and the knowledge that we have about Christ is that he is creator, Christ is revealer, and Christ is redeemer. And therefore, Christ is not at odds with the book of Genesis. Quite the contrary. When you get to Exodus, Exodus picks up the theme of redemption and God's acts to redeem His people so that they can serve Him in the wilderness. Exodus is all about God's redemption. And it is no wonder, therefore, that when you turn to the New Testament, you find Exodus theology all over Jesus Christ. He is called out of Egypt. In Matthew, Jesus is called our Passover. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus is our Exodus leader. There is an antitype to Moses going on there. Why? Because Exodus displays the redemptive work of Christ. It's pointing to that and how... Jesus takes us out of our bondage. He takes us out of our misery and our sin and our darkness. And he reconstitutes us as his people. Leviticus, the book of Leviticus is a cultural and a cultic reminder. Cultic meaning ritual, lots of rituals involved. A reminder of the holiness of God. How holy God is. I think of Alan Ross's commentary. Holiness to the Lord. So that when you performed your ritual, it wasn't just a weird ritual that you did. You did it, and then at the end you said, holiness to the Lord. That's why we separate the, 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 the blemishes, and, the, and, and, and that's why we purify the offerings, and that's why our grain has to be good grain, and that's why we have to do the burnt offering and, the, and cut the meat exactly the way he wants it cut, because holiness to the Lord because God is holy. And no, you can't just offer anything you want to God. Since the very opening of the book of the Bible, he's been teaching us that the offering of Cain was rejected. It was not acceptable to him. It was strange fire, if you would. A strange offering it was unacceptable. So the book of Leviticus leaves you groping for 
Where is the sacrifice that God will accept? Accept. We know what it is. That sacrifice is Christ, according to the book of Hebrews. It says that all of these old covenant sacrifices had, had, did not have the ability to make the worshiper perfect, but Christ does. Isn't that glorious? The gospel in Leviticus. Because in Leviticus, the worshiper's conscience cannot be cleansed. It cannot be made perfect. But Christ does. And I believe even in the Old Covenant, those that looked upon Christ, looking forward to Christ, could have their sins forgiven and be redeemed and be born again and justified looking forward to Christ. Numbers, an interesting book. Numbers is about the history of Israel and their rebellion, how they wandered for years because of their disobedience. Numbers is actually a very sad story. It was a portrayal of unbelief because as the book of Hebrews tells us, the word of God was not mingled with faith. And so the book of Numbers leaves people longing for the, the promised land. The first generation that came out of the Exodus is killed off because of unbelief. Even Moses, God's covenant servant, is forbidden from going into the land of milk and honey. And only Caleb and Joshua are given that privilege because of their faith in that land and in God's ability to take them there. Numbers beautifully displays Christ's successful work in the wilderness that unlike Israel, where they failed, he succeeded. Paul teaches that Jesus was the life-giving rock in the wilderness that Moses struck because of disobedience. And therefore, the book of Numbers makes us and causes us to look forward to that life-giving power of Christ, the life-giving power that will sustain you in the wilderness and give you strength to overcome your temptations. The book of Numbers also points us to the promised land itself, promising us rest. Don't you want rest? I want you to stop and think right now. Don't you want rest for your soul? I do. Trust me. <laughs> Just this tiny little mission trip, laying on my aunt's bed, curled up in a little ball with the shakes and going through all sorts of indescribable things. I wanted rest from all of this. Don't you want rest? Think about that. When you're going through your trial, when you're going through your physical infirmity, when you're going through your depression, when you're going through your stress, when you're going through that just horrendous sinful season where you just can't seem to get victory over your sin, you want rest once and for all. And the book of Hebrews tells us Joshua could not give them rest. Therefore, the land, the land is representative of ultimate rest, final rest, eschatological rest, resting in Christ, ultimately. And Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is that word that means to repeat certain things. And so there are re repetition of God's laws. They're repeated. And really, Deuteronomy is an amazing book. You know that Deuteronomy, alongside of a three other books, is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Deuteronomy is very foundational. I would encourage you to always study Deuteronomy. It's foundational for New Testament theology. But Deuteronomy gives us what, what could be described as the, the idealistic condition of God's people, how they should live in obedience to God's law. And so it sort of prefigures a time when God's people will be obedient and blessed. And sadly, though, Deuteronomy also has not just the blessings of the covenant, but the curses of the covenant as well, because God wants us to live at harmony with our neighbor. Jesus comes and teaches us how to live in harmony with our neighbor. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Beatitudes. All the teachings of Jesus that point us to how to live in Christian ethics it's beautiful. And ultimately, Deuteronomy is left, it leaves us groping for Jesus. Look at the book of Deuteronomy and realize that what that book is doing is it's leaving you hanging and anticipating Jesus Christ. 
Uh, maybe just a couple scriptures. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 18. Before we launch into Genesis, Deuteronomy 18, a scripture that you know very well, no doubt. Deuteronomy 18, 15, God promises the emergence of a great prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 15. And it says, the Lord your God will raise up a, for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking, from among you, from among you. This is what Hebrews points out, and he was among his brethren, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is, an, this, is an according, this is according to all that you asked the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. They need a mediator. And so Deuteronomy, if you turn to the last chapter very quickly, the last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, the inspired author is very careful to point out Deuteronomy 34.10, since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses. He didn't come. And so we're left with the opening of the New Testament. And guess what's going on right off the, the bat, right out of the gate in the New Testament? Are you the prophet? Is John the prophet? Some say about Jesus and John that he's the prophet. So the whole people of God, are, they're left groping for this great and glorious eschatological prophet to come. And he came. His name is Jesus. He is the prophet, priest, and king, so that you read Deuteronomy 18 and Deuteronomy 34 with Jesus. Jesus is being talked about here. And I do agree there. I do agree there with David Murray. I thought he did a good job in the book that we're reading to make, to specify we need to use the word Jesus because it's not enough to just use his messianic titles. It is sufficient. Don't get me wrong. But what he's trying to highlight is we got to make it personal. It is about our Savior. I mean, think if you were a disciple. You walked with him. You talked with him. You, you felt his breast. You heard him breathe. You saw him sweat. You saw him suffer. You heard his voice in your ears. He touched you. Jesus of Nazareth. That is what Deuteronomy is talking about. Unbelievable. Now, instead of continuing to just survey the law, I want to capture the essence of what Jesus says there or what is said of Jesus. Then beginning with Moses, he began to teach them all of the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Chapter 1 through chapter 3. So I can give you a, a Christ-centered biblical theology of Jesus in Genesis. Jesus in Genesis. When we read Genesis, we should never think that Jesus will show up one day. <laughs> when we think of Genesis, we should know that Jesus has already been there. <laughs> and that uh, he's been there even before Genesis starts. The truth is that Genesis is about Jesus. It is about his power to create. And so the creation reveals Jesus. And so we want to look at different things here. We want to look at the creation. I want to look at the fall. And then I want to look at the gospel promise. Okay. So first, everything according to the Bible was created by Jesus, right? And so with your hand in Genesis 1... Well, let's just read that quickly. 1-1. One, one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You have all the license in the world to find Jesus right there. We need not grapple with liberal commentators that, well, is, are we supposed to take Elohim because Elohim, is that really indicative of the Trinity? This and that. What? How about we just take it from Jesus himself? <laughs> Okay, how about we just stick to what the reformers called the analogy of the faith? 
The, uh, uh, the, 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 the fact that Scripture teaches Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture, rather. When you look at John chapter 1, for example, it is not a surprise to find that if you looked at the, the book of Genesis and the Greek Septuagint, you would find that it starts exactly the way that the Gospel of John starts, NRK, that phrase. And it says in the Gospel of John, let's make it explicit now, okay? Let's give ourselves all the license in the world to read Jesus into Genesis 1. John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus, according to verse 14. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. There's nothing, nothing, let's just stop there. There is nothing that, that is around us right now today, nothing. Space, stars, planets, galaxies, suns, moon, air, molecules, atoms, uh, nothing. Uh, all of the laws of physics, everything that you see all around you, every sunset, every sunrise, it is your Christian right to be able to say, thank you, Jesus for that sunset. Thank you, Jesus, for that beautiful blue moon, for that beautiful sky. Thank you, Jesus, that I can look up into the stars and marvel at your covenant faithfulness. Thank you, Jesus. I mean, I'm, I'm such a cre creation guy. I'm such a uh, nature guy. I mean, I marvel at the little ponds they have in the neighborhood, you know? I look at that, and I'm just like, I'm Yosemite. Thank you, Jesus, for the little pond there, a little elm in my neighborhood. I know, man, man, oh, it's man-made. Just don't get too, don't get too critical of my, of my message, but you know what I mean. Give glory to Christ for creation. I'm going to prove it to you. Go to Colossians chapter 1, and this will spill over very, very easily here into our next section. Not only does Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in chapter 1 teaches that Jesus created the world. That's what it says. I mean, isn't that just, he created the world, Jesus did. You either believe that through the Spirit or you don't, or you don't. But Colossians chapter 1 actually says two things that's very important for our next point. Not only are we looking at the creation being created by Christ, but also for Christ. Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That does not mean He is created. That means He is preeminent. That's what firstborn means. For by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. That means he created the angels. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's a good translation. Any translation that doesn't have for him is no good because huper there is important. It's for his benefit, for his Glory in order to serve him. Creation serves the purpose, the purpose of Christ. That's why we should read Psalm 150 and think of Jesus. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Everything, every creature, every animal, everything. You go to the zoo, you study whatever. Uh, National Geographic, or you watch, um, we recorded that, that documentary, what's it called? Planet Earth. You guys watched Planet Earth? Unbelievable glory. Unbelievable that God would let some unbelieving guy, probably, well, yeah, because they talk about evolution, but anyway, in such high-definition television to show us marvelous creatures that no one has ever seen ever, ever, ever. And that they're deep under the canyons and the caves and that no one has seen. And there's places where they go in that show where they've never shown light. And they're showing these little fish. 
under the water that live in just unbearable freezing temperatures, and they're doing little funny things, and they're eating and taking bubbles over here. And Who enjoys that? Christ enjoys that. It's for Him. He created it for His glory in order to serve His purpose. Isn't that marvelous? It serves the purpose of Christ. Creation serves the purpose of Christ. But before we start talking about day one, day two, day three, I promise I'm not going to take you through all the days. We're going to finish this. This is going to have an end. But creation itself causes you to contemplate what every little child asks his parent, her parent, one day or another. What was before creation? Where did God come from? Where did Jesus come from? Creation is a question. What was here before it was here? What was here before creation was here? Creation causes you to contemplate the pre-existence of Christ. John chapter 17, verse 4. What creation does is it causes us to wonder, what was God up to before creation was here? Well, according to the Bible, God had a very great plan before anything ever was created, before there were planets, before there were were angels, before there was anyone to redeem. God had a plan to redeem this eternal plan that we looked at in Ephesians 3 and that's talked about right here in John 17, verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And before the world was, God gave, the Father gave the Son work. It's very important to keep the members of the Trinity distinct. You cannot pray Thank you, Father, for dying on the cross for me. That's actually heresy. That's uh, patripatrianism, the suffering of the Father. The, the Bible doesn't teach the Father suffered for you. The Son did. You do that even in your prayers, probably not intentionally. You mess up redemption. You can't ever say, thank you, Jesus, my Father, Unless you're speaking in some sort of secondary way. But the Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, and the Spirit is the Spirit. You have to keep the three in mind. Maybe a book to help you do that in a non-apologetical way. This doesn't mean you're going to get get into debating the Trinity issue. But read John Owen's book, Communion with God. John Owen teaches you how to enjoy fellowship and communion with each member of the Godhead. Who writes like that anymore? Who's writing books like that? You got to go 400 years into the, ba- in the past, 500 years into the past to get a book like that. Okay. Beginning then with Genesis chapter 1, just point out different themes and how creation serves him. When God commands there to be light... The light of creation serves the redemptive purpose of Christ. It does. It does. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. He roots and grounds your salvation, my salvation, into day one of creation. That's what Paul does. I preached it. I don't know if you remember. It was like 1,600 years ago. <laughs> I've been like in 2 Corinthians forever. <laughs> but he says in, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says... For God, who said, light will shine out of darkness. Where did he say that? In Genesis chapter 1. Everybody universally agrees. This is going back to the creation narrative. He is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So when you think about God's galactic glory, When you think about God's galactic glory, when you look into the Hubble scope and the images that are portrayed there and the galaxies and you let your mind, I'm telling you, let your mind wander into the the recesses of infinity. Start thinking about that 
and remember that that God is the same God that said, let light shine in your heart, just like I shone up there. Isn't that incredible? Incredible! If that doesn't make you worship, if that doesn't break your heart, if that doesn't make you want to know God and just spend your life for Him, I don't know that anything will. I don't know that anything will. Because life is getting too fast, too smart, too technological, too seductive, too funny, too humorous, too entertaining, too, too busy. God created the heavens and the earth to give us an inheritance in Christ. It serves His purpose. That's why Christ says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, we will inherit the earth, the edets that He created. Not just the earth, but the new earth, the new heavens, the new earth. He makes the sea in Genesis chapter 1. Why? Because one day the ocean, the sea, is going to be the stage upon which Jesus shows off his sovereignty. As he walks on the sea, as he shows his dominion over the fish for Peter, he gathers the fish to himself, tells them, get in the net. Gathers the fish to himself and says, Swallow the coin so we have something to pay our taxes. He is sovereign. He, he rules over the sea. Remember that in the ancient world, especially to Jews, they viewed the ocean as a dangerous, dark, mysterious place to be avoided. You don't want to get caught in the deep. Jonah got swallowed up in the deep. Stay away from the deep. He makes the plants and the vegetation not just to provide food for his creatures, but to become parables and metaphors for his son. So that Jesus, through these vegetations and through the vegetation and through the plants and the, the mustard seeds and the fig trees and, and the lilies of the field and the grass that withers and the flower that fades can show us his majesty, can reveal to us the glory of his kingdom. He creates the stars. Next time you go out to the stars, I was, out, I, was, I was looking at the stars last night. I was outside, you know, trying to get my dog to get, become a little bit more playful. And I looked outside and I looked, some of you know what I'm talking about, but I looked outside and I looked at the stars and I said, covenant stars. Covenant stars. That's what I'm looking at. God said to Abraham, Abraham, come out of your tent Lift up your head. Look at those stars. No city lights. He looked up at the stars in the desert, and God said, these are covenant stars. These stars will be a perpetual reminder to you of my covenant faithfulness to you, that I will multiply you beyond your wildest dreams. Imagine if Abraham was teleported into some time in the future with all Christians standing in front of him where he could see his posterity, spiritually speaking. Look at the descendants I made. <laughs> An innumerable throng of people. The stars are covenant stars to show us the innumerable number of people that God will redeem and to show us the absolute faithfulness that God has towards us. He creates the light and the darkness so that we will be able to distinguish between good and evil and so that we will be able to know that our God is omniscient. He knows and sees everything. Isaiah, or excuse me, the book of Psalms 139, it says that light and darkness are the same to him. Light and darkness is the same to him. He creates man, male, and female and binds them together in a covenant of marriage to show us something of the faithfulness of Christ to his bride. Are you seeing now what I mean by creation serves Christ? It's not just for answers in Genesis to debate in apologetics. It's a lot more than that. I'm grateful for that. But it's a lot more than that. Genesis is Christ-centered. All of creation serves Christ's purpose. 
Consider the creation of man a little bit more closely into his image. You see, when man is created in the image of God, the language of the Imago Dei, image of God, sort of disappears off the pages of Scripture and really doesn't emerge back again until Christ, where Christ is as the as the, the second Adam, Christ is the image of God. As Hebrews tells us, he doesn't just image God in a, in, a, in a sense like we do, that we're like God in many respects. The author of Hebrews is careful to note the way he images God is that he is the exact reflection of who God is. He is a perfect reflection. So when God said, let us make man in our image, he was thinking about Jesus Christ. And the fact that one day, Christ would come in human nature. Human nature has the capacity to bear the image of God. And therefore, Christ did not come as a dog or a donkey or a, or a plant or a, or a horse or an angel. He comes as a man because men have the capacity to, to, to image God. And no one images God greater than than Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he is the image of God. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. And we know that Satan tried to destroy the image of God in the fall. And so, just a couple more places. Yikes, I'm going a little long here. But in Genesis chapter 3, you get to Genesis chapter 3 and you see the fall of man. And through the fall and the theology of the fall, it's the first time in the Bible that you and I are alerted to our need for redemption. Genesis chapter 3 in the fall shows us our need for Jesus. That's why Jesus came in real time and space, because the fall is real time and space. You, need a, you have a real person, a real historical event, and we need a real redemption, a historical redemption, and we need a historical man. We need another historical event to take place. And so Paul says in Galatians 4, in the fullness of the time, God sent his son. When the time was right, Mark's gospel says, the time is fulfilled. See? The hourglass had to reach a certain point before God would send forth His Son. And as David Murray says, we can understand the work of the last Adam only by understanding the work of the first. That's right. That's right. We have to look at the work of the first. And Paul makes this crystal clear in Romans chapter 5. He says in verse 18, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted right justification of life to all men. For, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even through the, the obedience of the one, the many will become righteous and and to make it shorter, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For in Adam all die, also in Christ all will be made alive. That is, everyone Adam represents dies. That's the whole human race. Everyone that Christ represents lives. That's his race. That's his posterity, his people, his elect. Lastly, we, live, we, leave, we leave with a, a gospel promise. You know this promise. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. And so here we have the first gospel promise. This is where the curse is reversed for God's people. It is the beginning of a new creation. The old creation ruined. So with this gospel promise, a new creation promised to us. So already the old creation is already pointing us to Christ and to His new creation. And that new creation, according to Scripture, begins now for the child of God. 
If you're a child of God, you are a new creation. You've been renewed. You're being renewed. You're being transformed and back into the image that you were to bear before the fall. So one last thing. Not only does the, the old creation point us to the new creation, it points us to the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth wherein will dwell righteousness, but God binds the Christology of all of Scripture with a symbol. He gives us a symbol. So he binds the book with a symbol. And the symbol that I'm referring to is the tree of life. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. I think live forever in that condition. Notice, he might stretch out his hand and take. Then it says that God, that God the Lord God, sent him out of the garden. And then it says that he put a cherubim. He stationed a cherubim with a flaming sword, which turned in every direction, guarding the way to the tree of life. Implication, you try to come up to that tree one more time, boy. And that's it for you. That cherubim will cut you down. The cherubim are not, you know, the cherubim, if you, if you notice carefully, you do the study of the cherubim, they are not little you know, cupids flying around with wings and harps, okay? They're warrior angels. They're warriors. They do war on God's behalf. They kill. They slay people for God. They're dreadful, Okay? And so he puts one of those warriors to guard the way to the tree of life. But the Bible introduces us to the tree of life again. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, it says that in, it's the opposite. It's, it's no more is God worried that you might stretch out your hand and take. Now he gives you legal authority, exousia, right, authority, to take the freely from the tree of life. It says in Revelation 2.7, I hope you're still with me. It says, I will grant to eat. You see that? Adam was forbidden to eat of the tree of life after the fall. Now God is saying, I will grant there's nothing greater than God giving you access to life. There's nothing greater than that. Than God saying, eat of life forever. Eat of it. Partake of it. You're in the paradise of God now. Freely eat it. Freely, perpetually. Just gorge yourself on life. Beautiful. Revelation chapter 22 Verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life. And we can know that we have that right now, right? We can know that we have the right then, now. Whether or not you have the right depends on whether or not you have Christ. Whether or not you're in Christ, whether or not you know Christ, whether or not you've been in union with Christ or joined to Christ, whether or not you've been born again, truly, genuinely, if you've truly been saved by Christ, if you've repented and trusted in Christ, if you have not, then on that day you will not have the right to eat of life. Instead, you will be barred, like Adam, you will be forever barred from the tree of life. For, for That's it. Chapter 20, that's it. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. There's no more books. There's no more opportunity to have the tree of life anymore. So he gave us a book where we don't have access to God in the beginning because of sin, and in the end it shows the great victory of those that have access to God through Jesus Christ. And he binds it in a book, and he places it in our hands with a symbol and a token of the Christ-centeredness of all of Scripture. This is what I was trying to say in Spanish through a translator. It feels a lot better to say it to you guys because I love you. 
and you're my church. This is where I belong. I love going on mission trips. There's nothing wrong with that. But I love being in my own church with my own people, with my own pa- fellow pastor, with my own fellow members, worshiping God in this place. Let's pray. Oh, God, please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and help us. Help us, Lord. We want to see Jesus more in Scripture. We don't say that in any weird, charismatic, subjective, es- you know, esoteric way. We say that theologically because you're a God of doctrine. You're a God of hermeneutics, and you call us to rightly divide the word of truth. And God, help us to see and to hear our Master, our Lord, tell us that He had to explain all of the things concerning Himself in all of Scripture. Help us never to approach our book again, our Bible, never to approach the Bible again, thinking, well, we better hurry up and get to Matthew if we want Jesus. No, No, the volume of the book is written of Him. And so help us, let this aid us in our sanctification. Let this aid us as we are being conformed and renewed in our mind, our thinking. And let this aid us in our theology as we're growing as your disciples. Help it to aid us to see Christ more glorious than ever before so that it may infuse in us and induce in us a greater capacity to love Him, to see Him, to worship Him, and ultimately to obey Him for the glory of God. It's in His name we pray. Oh, amen. Amen.